to sabbatical, I do get to teach one last time for the next three months, which means my talk today, three hours. <laughs> I'm kidding. Just two. Just two. Uh, <laughs> some of you are like, he's probably for real. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, happy Mother's Day again. I love... My mom, she was here last week. She is a strong, confident Southern belle who loves Jesus and will bless you out, and you won't even know it happened. And she has raised me right. I'm grateful for her and her uh, nurturing posture, and um, she's just fantastic. And I'm grateful for my wife and the mom that she is and has become for Selah and is becoming for Judah, which if you didn't know, part of our sabbatical is that we're having another child. Um, yeah, July 10th, in fact, um, we will have another little one coming into the world, which we are super pumped about um, and terrified at the very same time. Um, but again, thank you, moms, for all that you do and all that you are. Um, the incarnation of Jesus would not have happened without the Virgin Mary. And often we forget about her in the Protestant spaces um, and do not give her the credit that she actually deserves. But I do think that we have to acknowledge that the incarnation, God becoming flesh, would not have taken place if it not had gone through um, the body of Mary. And so very grateful um, for her role in um, our Lord and Savior and teacher and King's life. Um, Matthew chapter 28, that's where we're going to be at today. One of the most famous few words of Jesus in all of the gospel story. So go ahead and jump to Matthew 28. We're going to read verses 16 through 20. We've been looking at these various snapshots of Jesus with his disciples post-resurrection. He spends just about a month, 40 days in fact, um, with his disciples after the resurrection, before his ascension. And uh, today we will be looking at one of those encounters, one of those moments, a very famous one at that from Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The King James says the Holy Ghost. Come on, somebody. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together this morning. 
And as we pray, would you just um, become centered in your body and in this space and in this time, feet firmly planted on the ground. And I'm just going to pause for a moment of silence. As your chaotic mind wanders, I'm going to call you into this posture, what is referred to by the ancients, um, and that is centering prayer. Centering prayer. And I want you to focus on the word with in this moment of silence over the next few seconds as your mind wanders. May it come back to the word with. Holy Spirit, would you begin to speak now in this place, in a fresh way? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of my favorite TV shows of all time aired on NBC in 2006. And it ran for five glorious seasons. It uh, followed a high school football team in the fictional town of Dillon, Texas. It was accompanied by the cathartic instrumental brilliance of explosions in the sky. And it was also the first major gig for a little known actor by the name of Michael B. Jordan. That show was, of course... Friday Night Lights, Texas Forever. When I finished Friday Night Lights, I would be lying to you if I said I did not shed a tear. Because I did. And some of the best scenes of that show and of Friday Night Lights, which is back on Netflix, by the way, come on. Some of the best scenes took place in the locker room. The most famous line in the entire show is from the locker room. Let me prove it to you. Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. See what I'm talking about? See what I'm talking about? The most famous line in Friday Night Lights always took place in a locker room. Anybody else love Friday Night Lights? Yes. Come on. Tim Riggins, Jason Street, QB1. Yes. Love it. Old Matt Saracen and Grandma. It's a great show, man. Great show. I love it. I love it. This final scene with Jesus and his disciples takes place on an unnamed mountaintop 
in Galilee. We're not sure where it took place, but somewhere on a mountaintop in Galilee. I think that Jesus had a knack for hiking, it seems to me. I'm pretty sure he probably shopped at REI and wore Chacos and drove a Subaru. But uh, needless to say, he finds himself again hiking with his disciples on top of this mountain in Galilee in this final climactic moment. And, you know, Jesus went to mountains often with his disciples. And when he did, it always had a locker room feel to it. It always felt like this was kind of their headquarters, so to speak. What happened and what was said on mountains throughout the three years was always of high importance and of great significance. And each gospel writer does a fantastic job of inviting the reader to peer into these conversations and these teachings and the atmosphere. And this moment is no different. In particular, this moment is divided into two distinct parts. The final charge that Jesus gives, the final command, as well as the ascension, as articulated in Acts chapter 1, as well as in Luke 24. And there is so much in this final scene that informs our Christology, the nature of Christ, as well as our missiology or the mission of Christ and the mission of the church, our ecclesiology, in other words, what is the church and what is our role, and even eschatology, the end times, what is to come in the future. And we see so much in just a few short verses. Now, next week, Pastor Anderson will be teaching on the ascension and its implications, which I think actually get overlooked in a lot of theological spaces. We focus on the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, but we forget about often the ascension of Jesus and its necessity in the larger story of God. So I'm passing the baton to Anderson to teach next week on the ascension. Now, <laughs> these five verses at the end of Matthew's gospel account are referred to as what? The Great Commission, and for obvious reasons when we read the text. But one aspect of this mountaintop experience often gets brushed under the rug and forgotten about, even though, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, it's a consistent theme throughout these 40 days. We've noted this over the last few weeks in this teaching series. Verse 17 reads this. When they saw him, the eleven, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. Here we are again. The human predicament. The human inclination. The wrestling, even post-resurrection. And you automatically, when you read verse 17, now probably begin to connect the dots with Thomas from John 21. But Thomas is just one person. And it's a moment where he is navigating whether or not he should believe that Jesus was in fact resurrected. But in this scenario, in this moment, it says some of them, not one of them, some, plural, multiple, a group. Some of them doubted. 
So we like to sometimes rail on Thomas, but I'm pretty sure there were a handful of faithful disciples who wrestled with doubt. Now, the verb that is used in the Greek is distatso, and it's a little bit deeper than just a feeling of uncertainty or lack of belief. It more literally means to be torn between two directions. A double standing. When you read the word in the Greek, it literally means double standing. This reveals to us that whoever it was that was doubting, that's unnamed, are standing at a crossroads. They're indecisive, tentative, and they're kind of going back and forth in terms of direction. So it's not just a lack of certainty, so to speak, or a lack of belief, but it's actually indecision and wrestling with what direction do I take, standing at a crossroads. But I don't know that the struggle this time was to believe. I think the struggle here when we read the text was rather to worship or not. To worship or not. Now, when we read it, we assume in our minds that the group is probably 50-50. Some worshiped, some doubted. Split down the middle, 50-50. But the text reads, they worshiped, but some doubted. So I think it's actually quite possible that every single one of them worshiped. But some of them chose to worship even in their hesitance. Because it doesn't say some worshiped and some doubt it. It just says they worshiped, some doubt it. Some were hesitant. Now, the idea of worship here is not just, um, you know, your traditional understanding now in modern times of a four-hour-long worship night with the best of Bethel Jesus culture in Maverick City, um, but really it means to be prostrate on the floor in reverence, literally in reverence, laying down, revering the person. So it seems plausible, just reading the text, that even though some of them were at a crossroads and a bit hesitant, they still were choosing to embody worship. They still were revering Jesus. Which I think again goes back to this notion that even in our doubts and our hesitance and when we're at a crossroads, when we have these feelings Choose it anyway. Choose it anyway. Embody it. Embody it. If you're not feeling it, get on your knees, man. Get on your knees. If you're not getting the tinglies, lift a hand. Even when you don't feel it. Even when you're hesitant, just lift a hand. You're essentially saying, I don't know. I don't know. But I'm worshiping. I'm hesitant but I'm revering you. Then Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Here, Jesus is providing for us and giving the indicative 
That's a fancy word for the why. It's the why behind this final command. If you ever read the Great Commission and you're like, why? Why is he giving this? Then go up and read verse 18 because it provides for us the why. It provides for us the indicative. And this statement shapes, again, so much about our Christology. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? And brings even more clarity for next week when the discussion on the ascension takes place. Joshua from Nazareth, high school class of uh, 18 AD, and former carpenter, has now been given authority over every square inch of the created world. Pretty successful career, I'm just saying. I mean, you ever look back on Facebook at some of the friends you went to high school with, and you're like, wow, they've really made it. Impressive. Or at least they looked the part, you know? And some, you're like, I saw that coming. <laughs> right? You're like, I could have seen that one coming. There's no name Jesus. Joshua, very Hebrew. Graduates from Nazareth High School, Podunkville, Mount Galilee. Just a carpenter, carpenter's son. People forget his name all the time. And oh, by the way, now he has uh, rulership and authority and power over every square inch of the entire cosmos. Okay. This shapes our Christology. The Greek word is exousia. Can you say that? It's a good word to say. Exousia. Exousia. Great. Which means power. It also means jurisdiction. It also means rule or liberty or even can mean a crown. A crown. In fact, I actually looked up the word exousia and there are a lot of brands that have exousia in their name and they're headwear brands. Which I find to be very interesting. So the one who had been mocked with a crown of thorns on his head a few weeks prior has now been crowned king of the world. The king of glory. And in his authority, Jesus has taken the pen and become the author of cosmic redemption and recreation. I love that the word author is the prefix for authority. He's a writer. He's a creator. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And he is writing into history redemption through himself. All authority has been given to him. Not just in Jerusalem, not just in Israel, not just then, but now over the entire world. All rulership falls under Jesus of Nazareth right now. He is ruling even to this day. Hear this from the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, which I'm pulling out all my punches today. All my, my homeboys are coming with me on sabbatical. So um, hear what N.T. Wright has to say regarding Jesus and his rulership and the authority of Jesus. Jesus' authority as the risen one, by contrast, is the authority of the one who has defeated tyranny itself, the ultimate tyranny of death. His is the authority under which life, God's new life, can begin to flourish. Despite what many people today suppose, it is basic to the most elementary New Testament faith that Jesus is already ruling the whole world. 
He is working to take it from where it was under the rule not only of death, but of corruption, greed, and every kind of wickedness, and to bring it by slow means and quick under the rule of his life-giving love. And the people said, Amen. Amen. Jesus is ruling even now. Um, The Dutch priests and psychologist Adrian von Kamm talks about the story of God in this way as it pertains to formation, which I think leans into, again, what Jesus is doing at the center of history as the one who has total authority. He says that in the beginning, God forms the world, and then sin deforms the world. And then through Jesus, Jesus begins to reform the world. And he can only do this by ruling And then eventually, as we will see with Pentecost, the Spirit is unleashed and the Spirit transforms. So God forms, sin deforms, Jesus, by ruling and reigning, reforms, and the Spirit of God transforms. That is the process of formation as it pertains to the story of God. He is above all things, and he holds all things together. Meaning, if you take Jesus out of reality, it all crumbles. He is the ultimate reference point for reality. And he rules and he reigns and he is working and he is active by way of his spirit even now. He's not just chilling upstairs, sitting down. He is active by way of his spirit and he is interceding on behalf of us all the time. But then Jesus does something magnificent. He actually invites us and invites the 11, the disciples, to be his primary agents in this process of reformation and transformation. The famous verse 19, therefore, which is a conjunction. This is why you got to read before, okay? Therefore, and because, because he's ruling, because he's reigning, go and make disciples of all the nations, The word in Greek there is ethnos. It just means people group. It also meant Gentiles, tribes. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Herein we see the central task of the church. If you didn't know what it was before today, now you know. Go and make disciples of all people, of all nations. To clarify for some of us, this is not just a call for some of you to go on an overseas missions experience. This is not just a program of the church, but is the assignment given to the church. It is not done on our own, but in co-mission with the soon-to-come spirit of Christ. The call to make disciples is not relegated to an education wing of the church. It is the holistic task of all of the people of God to go and make disciples because Jesus is ruling and all authority has been given to him. And soon that authority is going to be dispersed amongst the people of God. He's already given them a foretaste a few years prior, to go heal the sick, cast out demons, do the thing, proclaim the gospel. 
But now we have the authority that rules the cosmos living in us and exercising redemption in this world. We are now his agents of change and transformation. This is not a suggestion. This is not a good idea. This is not just a good concept or a good thought or a really good strategic plan. But a command from the ruler who is in charge. The Great Commission, friends and family, is not an option. But a directive from a risen Jesus. We exist. Emmaus Church exists. You are even here today. We are here today because of this command two millennia ago. Without this command, we wouldn't be here. We would not even be here. There are four movements that mark the disciples' journey in the gospel story, I think. I'm going to provide a few different little models here today that hopefully are helpful for you. There's the great call, the invitation. There's also the great cost, which we like to kind of skip over. Yeah. There's the great commandment that sums up the law, love God, love neighbor. And now there's the great commission. It's four movements that happens in the gospel story. The great call, the great cost, the great commandment, and now the great commission. We need all four as followers of Jesus. And in this, I think that there is great cosmic purpose. There is this sense of meaning and reason in this final charge from Jesus. A reason for living. Some of us need a sense of purpose. We all do as humans, but some of us are trying to figure that out right now. You're wrestling with a sense of purpose and trying to figure it out. But here's the beautiful fact. It's already been given to you. All of us. Not just me, not just Jordan, not just those on stage, but all of us doing the work of the ministry, making disciples. We have purpose. It's been given. You have a calling. You don't have to go find one. Yes, there's a unique one based on your individual wiring, your Enneagram type, and your Myers-Briggs, and your strengths finder. Yes, there's a unique call, but there's a general call for all of us to make disciples of all nations. There's great purpose. And if we're honest, we look around the world and we're lacking a sense of meaning. But here is some meaning. Here is some purpose. Uh, one of my pet peeves is uh, when I get to a stoplight and there is someone in front of me and they're usually on their phone. Sometimes it's me too, you know, I'll be honest. And uh, light turns green and they don't go. So, like the saintly person that I am as a pastor, I lay on the horn, man. Get it going, bro. You know? Speed it up! Which reveals a lot of my inner turmoil and, and, and pain that needs to be healed. But For some of us, I think when we look at this passage of Scripture, it's almost as though it's just a caution light or yellow light. And I'm like, no, he just says go. Green means go. Okay? Go. 
It's not an option. You go. So if you've been waiting on a call from God as to what do I do with my life, here's the call. Here's the command. Here it is. If you worship Jesus the King, and they worshiped him, here's the response. Go make, baptize, teach. Go make, baptize, teach. Go make, baptize, teach. You want calling? You want vocation? You don't have to go pick up a book of Barnes and Nobles on it. Yes, you can do some self-discovery and learn more about yourself, but you still need a purpose. You still need some, some sense of call. And here it is. Go make, baptize, teach. Go do it. Not a caution light, but a green one. Now go. And if you know the story of God at all, that we talk about at Emmaus, this mirrors very clearly the cultural mandate from Genesis chapter 1. To be fruitful and multiply. To rule and subdue the earth. The original call for human beings was meant was uh, given and meant to make image bearers who could go to the ends of the earth to reflect and represent God, bringing him glory. And this parallels that. It's side by side with that call to make image bearers. So for us to go and make disciples of Jesus is to go and make people into a reflection of Jesus. To go and make people into images of Jesus who look like Jesus. Now, Jesus uses the word disciple. Paul uses the word ambassador. Peter uses the word priest. To be representatives of Jesus and to go make more representatives to fill this world. Baptizing them into his body and teaching them his ways. Now, there are four verbs in this, this little verse, but there's one primary verb. One primary verb, one main verb, and that is make. Make. This word make in the Greek is the verb form for disciple. And so the primary action in this command is to build, construct, form, develop, develop and create students of Jesus. It is not passive, but an active call. He is asking you and I to do this. Not just converts, not just getting someone to pray a prayer. Yes, there's a moment of conversion. Yes, there's a turning point. But it's so much more than that. To build students or apprentices who are with Jesus Becoming like Jesus in attitude and character and doing what he did. Doing what he did. It is in this final command that all metrics are based. John Tyson says, your church is only as good as its disciples. Emmaus is only as good as our disciples. It's not about how many people we pack into a room or all the good work that we do or serving even. These are great things. Or whether we're in a community or not, that's part of it. But at the end of the day, the primary focus is disciple making. And we're only as good as our disciples. 
So two of the most important questions that we can ask as a body and as a church are, what is our plan for disciple making? What is our plan for making disciples? And how's it going? Two important questions. What's our plan for disciple making and how's it going? Where are you in the process of becoming? Are we, are we, are we after this? Do you feel? I mean, we literally, we planted Emmaus because of a heartbeat and pulse that came out of this command. I want to see disciples, rugged and resilient disciples of Jesus that are being formed over a lifetime into wholeness and into goodness and into peace. And it costs a lot. It costs a lot. But here's the thing. The cost of non-discipleship will cost you more. Abundant life, wholeness, purpose, meaning, connection, freedom, intimacy, fulfilled desire, reason for suffering, we talk about the cost of discipleship all the time. It's great. Bonhoeffer, cost of discipleship. Yes, it's hard. But let me tell you something, friends. The cost of non-discipleship to Jesus of Nazareth, who I believe offers words of life and is life embodied, will cost you a whole lot more. A whole lot more. Our primary task at Emmaus is to make disciples of Jesus, and we are only as good as our disciples. Now, much of the last century in the Western church has been primarily about gathering people and disseminating information or creating exciting experiences. All good stuff. It's great. It's necessary. Literally, the word church in the Greek means gathering. Ecclesia means gathering. But why do we gather? It's for this end. It's for this aim. But over the last century, we have kind of lost our way a bit. I think the pandemic exposed this for most Protestants in the Western world. Our discipleship process and strategy was exposed because people aren't widgets. We don't just th throw them through a pathway of 101, 201, 301, 401, boop, disciple of Jesus, you're good to go. Keep them coming, 101, 201, 301, 401, boop, disciple of Jesus, you're good to go. That's information dissemination and it's producing great volunteers, but not followers of Jesus. We can look around the church and, and agree because I think there has been little done around a word in this verse that gets so forgotten, and it is the word obey. Obedience. We have turned obedience into participation. And it's so much more. Good participants. But we got to be people who obey. Instead of teaching people to obey all Jesus commanded, we have settled for just teaching what Jesus commanded and left it at that. Or have only focused on Jesus as Savior and forgotten that Jesus was a builder and a teacher who taught an ethic and a way of living. I've said this before, but growing up in my home church, I never really heard of Jesus as rabbi and teacher. I just heard Savior and Lord, and that was it, which is so true. But if we do not reclaim Jesus as also rabbi and teacher, we will not become holistically formed disciples who walk in obedience to his teaching. Dallas Willard has famously called this the great omission. The great omission. Here's what he has to say in his book. I told you I'm pulling out all my punches today. All right. Here's what Mr. Willard has to say about this. He says, the current position of the church in our world 
may be better explained by what liberals and conservatives have shared than by how they differ. All of you are antsy by hearing some of this. <laughs> For different reasons and with different emphases, they have agreed that discipleship to Christ is optional to membership in the Christian church. Thus, the very type of life that could change the course of human society and upon occasion has done so is excluded or at least omitted from the essential message of the church. He goes on to say that the biggest question we have to wrestle with now is those who are Christian will become, those who are called Christians will become disciples of Jesus. There is and has been a chasm for such a time between belief and behavior, doctrine and praxis. And we have to bridge this gap. Mildred Bangs Weinkoop calls this a credibility gap. There's a gap between our doctrine and our, our ethics, or what we believe and how we live it out in everyday life. And that gap has to be closed. Tony Evans says the problem today is not that we don't have enough Christians, it's that Christ doesn't have enough disciples. Let that sink in for a second. Our vision for discipleship, friends, isn't to just provide new information, new content, but requires a transformation of heart and habit, a change of focus and attention, a change of will and desire, a change of belief and behavior, all empowered by the grace endowed by the Spirit of Christ in his body. And so for us at Emmaus, discipleship, we've made it very clear has been defined in this way, practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And we do this together. Practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of all things. So when someone asks you in our community, maybe we should make this a practice randomly throughout the week. Hey, what's discipleship in Emmaus? Like, what are we after? Practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And we do it together. Following Jesus and his teachings. But this passage is at the end of Matthew. It's not the beginning. They are already disciples. And he is calling them now to go and do with others what Jesus did with them. To not just be, but also make. And in that, we see a collision of identity or who you are, who they are, and calling what it is we are to do or what you do. Cars drive, fires burn, dogs bark, and disciples disciple. That's what we do. That's the nature of goodness. Did you know that? For something to be good, it has to be in alignment with its nature. A... a a good HVAC system, hello, will produce cold air, right? If it ain't producing cold air, guess what? It ain't good, bro. It's not good. Good disciples make disciples. I, uh, I had a major life change in my life at age nine. I uh, began contributing to this little world that we find ourselves in. In the summer of, uh, of that year, my dad took me outside, pulled out this machine out of the garage. It's called a lawnmower. 
and he began teaching me the way of mowing the grass. So he didn't have to do it anymore. <laughs> and he would walk with me and talk with me and tell me. I'm just kidding. Um, if you're over 65, you know what I'm singing. Anyway, um, he would walk with me and I'd walk beside him as we mow one strip. Turn around, come back. And then I would do it and he would help me and we would walk. And then we'd get back and he's like, all right, you get to do this one by yourself. And I'm going, you know, it's a little bit, a little zigzag, right? But I learned the way of how to mow the grass. And I went back to that moment a couple weeks ago because I had to mow the grass in my house because my wife was just harping on me about getting that grass mowed. But if it hadn't been for that moment, that time of, of being taught the way with my dad, I wouldn't have learned. It's the perfect example of discipleship to Jesus. It's what discipleship is all about. Learning the way. And now eventually, one of these days, Selah and Judah, come out, my little ones. <laughs> Let me show you the way of mowing this whole yard in Jesus' name. And I got a push mower too. It ain't no joke, okay? Some of y'all got riding lawn more than a quarter of an acre. I'm not sure what's happening right there. Um, but anyway, I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. My wife's like, you know what you're going to do all sabbatical long? You're going to be in that yard. There's a progression of growth for followers of Jesus. We see this in the, in the story. There's a progression from participation or participating. And this is really the crowds participate. To then practicing, becoming a disciple. Key words, practicing. Okay? Your belief and your behavior are beginning to close. To eventually then teaching or becoming a disciple maker, which is the call of all of us. You may not be a teacher, but your call is to teach and instruct others in the way of Jesus. Hebrews 5.12, which little um, foreshadowing, all summer long Emmaus will be walking through the book of Hebrews together, just chapter by chapter. So all the people who love a good expository, exegetical sermon, verse by verse, it's coming this summer, okay? All right. Hebrews 5.12 says, you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. He's like, the writer of Hebrews is like, you've been a believer for 20 years, man. You haven't taught anyone. It's time for you to teach. You ought to teach others. This is part of our call, to teach others. That's the progression. You have to ask yourself, where am I? Am I just a participant, just an, an attendee, a consumer? Or am I practicing? I'm engaged, man. I'm engaged in the rhythm of life. I'm spending time with the Lord. Like, I am submitting all of the areas of my life to Him. I'm in community. I'm serving, all the things. Okay, great. Are you making a disciple? Who are you teaching? If I were to ask you right now, who are you, who are you discipling? It's a question we have to wrestle with. Now, in the 1960s, the National Training Laboratories Institute developed what is commonly called the learning pyramid. Anybody heard of this before? The learning pyramid or the, the cone of learning? It's a little bit controversial, but I think it's actually very helpful. Um, it is in this pyramid that it kind of helps reveal how we as individuals retain information. 
It's all about retention. And in this pyramid, we see that about 5% of our information is retained through lecture, which means if you just show up on Sunday morning, you're not going to follow Jesus very well, okay? If this is true. 10% is done through reading, okay? 20% audiovisual, 30% demonstration, 50% discussion, which if you're in house church, you're having some discussion, that's a good step. We're moving, Okay? Practice, practice doing, 75%. Engage in actually what Jesus did, okay? But 90% of our learning and retaining what we learn comes through teaching others. Now, I get there might be some um, pedagog pedagogy differences with folks in terms of education. Does this really work? Does it not? All I'm saying is when I have taught someone else something, I have learned a lot about that subject. When you teach another disciple of Jesus, it's just not about you teaching them. It's about you being taught as well. This is how we are formed and how we are shaped. But the only challenge with such a model, though it's incredibly beneficial, is that it primarily focuses on information download and only engaging the left side of the brain. Because for us as followers of Jesus, retention isn't the only goal, but formation into obedience is. To become. Not just to do, that's part of it, be with, become, and do, but to become a person of love, to become like Jesus. Discipleship is about more than just retaining, but it's actually a process of retraining. Retraining. And so for this to happen, yes, it requires information, but it also requires relational attachment, producing imitation. Imitation. Much of our learning actually comes from mirror neurons in our brain that sees another example of a person doing something, and we do that subconsciously because we attach ourselves to them relationally. That's how we learn. You have an accent because your mama has an accent. You got some little quirks because your daddy's got quirks. <laughs> Even if you try to get rid of them. Right? Jesus is in my heart. Grandpa's in my bones. Like, <laughs> come, catch on up. Come on. You got it. We imitate. This is what we do. So Rene Girard talks about mimetic theory. We imitate others. We become our community. Okay? If you were in seventh grade and you were a little emo kid, I bet all your friends were emo too. Yeah, that's right. You were 16 and an athlete. You're hanging out with jocks probably all the time. That's why if you were kind of like, in, an, like an artist on the inside, but you're also a jock, there's a cognitive dissonance in your brain that's happening. You're like, who do I hang out with? Who is my group? Because the group forms you. We imitate others. This is how it works. We attach ourselves relationally. We don't just get information. We, can just, we don't just Google stuff. Yeah, follow Jesus. No, no, no. We attach ourselves relationally to God and through God to his community. And then we are able to walk in imitation. Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 says, Because we love you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. This is about proximity and intimacy. It's about attachment. It's about relational connection. I shared my life with you. If I spent 24-7 with you for three months, I'm pretty sure either you're going to become like me or I'm going to become like you or somewhere in the middle because we spend time together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, and you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. This is how people are formed. It's through imitation. Imitate me. This is why Daniel 
LaRusso and Mr. Miyagi are going through the same motions together, right? Karate Kid, anybody? Some of you are like, what is the Karate Kid? I don't know that movie. You're missing out on Americana, like folklore. Anyway, it's about imitation, following an example. So just through proximity and imitation, you will produce disciples, whether we like it or not. In fact, someone right now looks to you as their teacher. You are teaching someone. Your life script is teaching someone. The question, is just, the question we have to always ask, though, is just what kind of person are we teaching them to become? Because you always make what you are. If you're a bundle of nerves, you're going to make a bundle of nerves. If you're a non-anxious presence and highly differentiated, you will make that. If you're deeply critical, you're going to make a critical person. If you're deeply loving, you're probably going to make a deeply loving person. If you're a little wishy-washy and you're kind of, you know, this um, person who's highly indecisive, you will probably make that kind of person. We make what we are because we're mimetic by nature. So, in this, it's, it's helpful, I think, for us to ask the question, how do we make disciples? Okay? And I think just there's a few eyes I want to give for you. I think they fall in line. I think they make sense. I think that they're helpful. Take them with you over these next three months and put them into application in your life, okay? The first is we inquire with someone. We usually inquire regarding their life, story. We build relationship. We begin to build intimacy. And then eventually there's an invitation into discipleship. I think it has to be named. Like I think you have to say, hey, let's Let's do discipleship together. Let's do this thing together. Let's follow Jesus together. Let's practice the way together. All right? Let's do these disciplines together. Let's pray together. Let's confess together. There's an invitation. And then eventually there is some sort of like initiation, right? Like this is hard. It's not just fun. It's hard. There's a cost. Instruction follows and then eventually moves into imitation. And over time, degrees of intimacy does, I think, increase. So I think this is a very helpful little paradigm for how we are to make disciples who obey the way. We don't stop at instruction. We move to imitation. Now, as I begin to wrap up, which I promise I will wrap up here, the very last verse provides for us something that is deeply hopeful. Where Jesus says this, be sure of this. I am with you. Come on, I am with you always. I don't take time off. I'm with you. Even to the end of the age. So not only is there a reason given the authority of Jesus, as well as clear directives, go, make, baptize, teach. But there's also a promise. Surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. This, this clarifies for us that he is, in fact, Emmanuel. He is God with us. It was prophesied about. He will be called what? Emmanuel. Guess what he's saying here? Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. I am with you always. I am Emmanuel. He reminds them and he reminds us that we aren't alone. That I am with you. I will be with you making this possible. I'll be with you in this command. I'll be teaching. I'll be instructing by way of my spirit. I'm not going to be with you just to comfort you or even just to convict you, but to continuously remind us all of the command and the call. I'm with you always. As I've become a parent, two questions tend to haunt me. And uh, some of you parents, I know you wrestle with a lot of questions regarding your children. 
But for me, it isn't simply, how do I become a good parent? Or what's the best book on parenting I can pick my hands up on? Or even how do I get my little girl and my little boy to live a successful life, to go to college and, and have it better than I did? Those aren't the questions. Good questions, but not the questions. But the question I've been wrestling with the most, guys, if I'm honest, is how do I make them disciples of Jesus? Haunts me, man. I want to know with confidence and with almost expectation that when my daughter and my son are 21, 25 years old, they might wrestle, they might go on their process. It's not linear, but they will follow Jesus. That's the question I've asked. How will I make them into disciples of Jesus? And the second question I ask on the backside of that is, do I live a life worth imitating? That when they look at their dad, do they see someone who passionately loves Jesus and loves his bride? That yes, he's got mistakes. Yes, he's got issues. Yes, he's got trauma. Yes, he's got a past. Yes, he's got brokenness. But he desires to know Jesus and to give Jesus glory and to follow after him. And they can see it. Because the things I learned from my family, guess what, friends, are not the things that they sat down and instructed me on. It was things I simply caught from watching them. And through imitation has impacted me. And to, to kind of to bring it home for us, I've, I've asked myself the question in the same way with this community. Not so much how can I be a good pastor, Or how can I preach a great sermon? And that happens a lot. Right? But after today, I'm at least one for one. So, But my question is, how, how, how can I and we together make disciples of Jesus? It ain't about me, bro. It's not about Jordan. It's not even about this property. It's about becoming people who are intimately connected to the vine and are abiding in the vine and are becoming like Jesus in their attitude, in their disposition, and in their behavior. That is what I'm after. As H.B. Charles has said, the last command of Jesus must remain the first priority of the church. Our first priority in this community is to make disciples of Jesus who practice the way, who are growing and who are becoming more and more mature. If you don't think you have room to grow, I don't know who you're following because Jesus is infinite. You are finite. You've been invited on a long journey of becoming. I'm expecting that God's going to do some beautiful things over these next three months because we have built disciples of Jesus. And this community has become a flourishing community and we're going in in a very healthy season. Some people go into sabbatical and crisis. And we're not. We're excited. But it's a chance for our community to kind of fly out of the nest a little bit. And to be reminded that Emmaus is not about us. This is a humbling experience for Jordan and I. It is not about us. You can do it. We can do it. Now I'm hoping that by, you know, at least the next six or eight weeks, you're like, man, I really want them back. <laughs> but I want to know that I don't have to come back because you got it. It's in the ethos. It's in the water. It's in the culture. We practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. It's what we do.
we journey together. We journey together. So my closing question for you is, um, do you live a life worth imitating? And who will you train? Simple questions. Do you live a life worth imitating? And who will you train? Who are you training? Educating, teaching, inviting into a journey. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, thank you so much that you are teacher, that you are Lord, that you are master, you are king. And thank you that you have given us great purpose. And you have given us a great call and a vocation for all of us to go and make disciples of Jesus. I'm grateful for this community. I love serving this community. And I'm expecting your Holy Spirit to pour himself out over these next few months and to continue beyond. May this community be bound together even tighter than before and continue going after what we've been going after for seven years. Making disciples on mission for the renewal of all things along with you seeking wholeness and healing in every facet of our life, our interior life, our mind, our heart, our will, our desires, our thoughts, submitting our bodies to you, submitting our work and our vocation to you, and using the spaces where we live, work, and play as playgrounds for disciple-making. As you come to the table this morning to partake in the bread and the cup, Thank you.